That song by Uncle titled I Got You brings the time to one o'clock. It's time now for our latest news update with Zolani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Zakana. Good afternoon. The United Nations has warned that continued invoking of ethnic affiliations and hate speech in Guinea's election campaigns could lead to violence. In a joint statement, UN rights boss Michelle Bachelet and acting special advisor on the prevention of genocide, Pramila Patton, have urged candidates to refrain from hate speech. President Alpha Conde, who is seeking a controversial third term, is largely backed by Malinke people, while his main opponent, Selao Delian Diallo, is largely backed by Fulani people. Guinea is set to hold presidential elections on the 18th of this month. Amnesty International says so far at least 50 people have been killed during demonstrations against President Conde's third term bid. Authorities in Mali have confirmed the release of a dozen political and military figures arrested during a coup in August. They include prime, former Prime Minister Bubo Sisse. In an official statement, the authorities say the former detainees would remain at the disposition of the courts if needed. On Monday, the transitional government announced a new cabinet in which members of the junta were handed several key posts including defence, security, territorial administration and national reconciliation. The West African regional bloc ECOWAS has also lifted sanctions on Mali.
The Nigerian Navy has deployed six warships and 65 gunboats in a joint multinational maritime exercise comprising 16 foreign navies from Europe, America and Africa. The participating countries are the U.S., France, Italy, Brazil and Gulf of Guinea countries, including Angola, Benin, Cameroon and the Democratic Republic of Congo, among others. The exercise is aimed at developing the capacity of the various navies for maritime security operations within the Gulf of Guinea countries. It will also be used to train troops on the use of the nation's maritime domain awareness infrastructure for surveillance and threat assessment. Chairperson of the Collaborating Political Parties, CPP, in Liberia, Alexandra Cummings, has called on Liberians to carry out national political action. According to him, the country is degenerating into crisis and it is time to act swiftly. He says the action is to redeem Liberia from what he calls retrogression. Cummings, who was flanked on his side by former Vice President Joseph Buakai, said the level at which Liberia was going needed much rather needed urgent attention. He is also the political leader of the Alternative National Congress, a breakaway of the ruling CDC party. Germany has reported a spike in daily coronavirus infections with confirmed cases rising to more than 4,000. It's the highest number of cases in a 24-hour period since April. One of the worst hit is the capital, Berlin. Health Minister Jens Spahn has described the increase in infections as worrying. At the end of the day, it's us, the citizens, who, through prudent actions, have brought Germany through this crisis so far, not least because you've integrated the rules into your day-to-day life. The situation in the capital shows how careless, sometimes ignorant actions on the pandemic can quickly lead to other developments. So I can only expressly welcome measures taken by the Berlin government. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo, and now for a sports update with Neto Chimani. Thank you, Jolani. A very good afternoon, sport fans. Starting with athletics news. USA athlete Sarah Hall donated her earnings in Sunday's London Marathon to a charity in Ethiopia. The American has contributed to a building project in Senegal. Our correspondent, Kesham Nyati, reports. Sarah Ryan took the second prize money behind Bridget Koskai of Kenya in the London Marathon. A devout Christian, the American runner, announced a prize money will be given to Ethiopia where she and husband Ryan adopted four children who now live in Arizona. Hannah, the eldest of the adopted girls, has since won the Arizona Division II High School's cross-country for the Eagles. Sarah and Ryan, a 2016 Olympic marathon runner, have in the past traveled and trained in Ethiopia with some of the finest athletes in the East African country. In swimming news, swimming South Africa has begun preparations for the upcoming events, starting with the short course competition taking place in Pietermaritzburg in the KwaZulu-Natal province from the 24th to the 27th of October. Swimming South Africa President Alan Fritz has more. We have started a regional competition short course throughout the country and that has culminated in the qualification for swimmers that will participate in, uh, in October in a week or two's time at the uh, National Short Course Championships in Peter Marysburg. So we have seen some real um, good times. Uh, I'm, I'm quite pleased because we, you know, we uh, are six months behind the rest of the swimming world. Uh, we didn't have any training or competition, so we have a huge, huge uh, catch-up to play. Channel Africa with sports from an African perspective. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Ito Chemani. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. A court in Kenya has found found two men guilty of helping the Al-Qaeda-linked Al-Shabaab militant group launch a deadly terror attack in a mall in the capital Nairobi in 2013, which left 67 people dead. A third man has, however, was, however, acquitted of all charges in the five-hour judgment delivered yesterday. Sarah Kamani has been following the story and filed this report. 
Seven years since the upmarket Westgate Mall attack, one of the worst attacks on Kenyan soil, it was time for the Chief Magistrate Francis Andai to deliver his ruling on the 12 charges that faced the accused persons. Mohammed Abdi Ahmed and Hussein Hassan Mustafa were found guilty. I am, however, satisfied that the prosecution has proved its case against the first and fourth accused persons on the respective charges facing them herein beyond a reasonable doubt. I find them guilty and convict them accordingly as follows. The first and fourth accused persons on count number two, charge of conspiracy to commit a terrorist act, contract section 23.4 of the Prevention of Terrorism Act. The first and fourth accused persons on counts number three and 12 respectively for knowingly supporting the commission of a terrorist act, contract section 9.1 of the Prevention of Terrorism Act. The first accused person on counts five and six for being in possession of an article connected with a terrorism offense, contrary to section 30 of the Prevention of Terrorism Act. Liban Abdallah Omar was acquitted of all the charges. The prosecution welcomed Wednesday's ruling but was quick to add that they will be seeking maximum sentences for the two. It's uh, justice for the people of Kenya and those who were affected by the Westgate attack. Security was high in and around the courts as the magistrate delivered the much-awaited ruling. Submission on the sentencing of the two will begin on the 22nd of this month. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. One of the elite units with the formations of the Nigerian police, the Special Anti-Robbery Squad Unit, is to be taken off the country's streets following a consistent outcry by citizens whose, whose lot, lots have been worsened by the high-handedness of the unit. The decision was applauded by the Vice President, Professor Yemi Osinbanjo, who had in the past initiated move to have the system reformed so that the unit can concentrate on the main purpose of its existence. Collins Akhtunhegbe reports. The Special Anti-Robbery Squad Unit SARS was set up to deal with a number of criminality which included armed robbery, kidnapping, cybercrime and such other breaches in the security system which requires covert operations with emphasis on intelligence gathering. But as it has turned out to be, members of the unit had constituted themselves into a social institution in whose hands many citizens, especially youths, have been tortured and in many cases debt at various times in addition to extending their duty into the use of illegal steps to enforce compliance by forcing citizens to submit even their cell phones and personal computers for check along the streets of Nigeria. Responding to questions from State House correspondents on the fresh directives, the Vice President Yemi Sibajo says the order is a step in the right direction. I'm very concerned, in fact sometimes angry about what I see happening, you know, to young men and women who are arrested uh, uh, or in some cases maimed or killed, you know, by uh, men of the police force and, you know, in some cases uh, those who man tactical, uh, tactical units of the police force, such as SARS or, and the other uh, different tactical units that there are. It is, it, it is, it, it is uh, completely objectionable, it is unacceptable. These are individuals who are meant to protect the Nigerians. For example, you cannot have a situation where SARS say they're investigating cybercrime and arresting people, young men and women who are carrying laptops and carrying on their phones. You know, cybercrime is an electronic uh, crime. There's no way that you can investigate that by seizing people's phones in a taxi or in their cars. So I think it's very obvious that uh, this is a major concern a few bad eggs within the police force are causing a lot of these. Uh, and because it's, because it's all over the place in different states, there's a need, of course, to take serious action. Various opinions expressed by lots of Nigerians point to the fact that there are some missing links within the command and operational system which has made SARS repulsive to the people it was set up to protect. The former commissioner of police in Lagos State, Fatai Owoshini, says non-compliance with operational dictates and poor supervisions are part of the problems. They have rules and regulations that guide them. When measures like these are taken, nobody go back to see the level of compliance. You see people that um, 
work in the PMF, in SARS, in whatever, they move from one unit to the other. It's circulating the violence. And above all, special anti-robbery squad are supposed to work based on actionable intelligence. It is not done anywhere in the world where policemen will just stand on the road and be checking people's uh, telephone. Um, and as long as the authority also, you know, favor people that uh, use extrajudicial means to carry out duty you encourage all sort of things like that the increasing killing of innocent nigerians under questionable circumstances led to a campaign calling for SARS to be disbanded at that the government announced some measures and set up a committee to look into the operational style of the anti-robbery unit though there were pronouncements in the attempts to put the unit on the check sandra ezekwesili a journalist and an activist says this is just another lip service on the issue we had an NSAS campaign that looked like it yielded results two, two or three years ago when we had Professor Oshimbajo come out and um, um, announce a lot of reforms and said they were having conversations and all of these things were supposed uh, to lead to an end of the brutality that Nigerians uh, are suffering at the hands of SARS. So this is one more lip service that is being paid to this particular problem. Disbanding SARS isn't the answer. So what we need is a reformation of our policing system. We have police officers today who were not a part of the policing system of the 60s or the 70s, and yet they've inherited the occupy and oppress mentality instead of the protect and serve mentality. A professor of criminology at Tanibi Elemiha who served on the board that was set up by the presidency to look into the SARS issue says without proper supervision there will not be any changes because members of the unit do often add their own conditions to the rules of operations. We are increasingly margin covert intelligent operation with overt operations so you find those who are supposed to you know be non-active operators or the street with their badges and the rest of it so there are a lot of confusion in the policing architecture of the country but there's lack of supervision i don't know whether there is going to be a new mechanism for supervising more effectively under the present regime so basically it's a matter of supervision Police gave them its own terms of reference, but they also added their own terms of reference, and nobody is holding them accountable. Except there is an increasing supervision, like nothing will change. Change was the reason additional measures were introduced to keep crimes at bay. But that seems to have rubbed off wrongly on the people. Not less than eight people have met their untimely deaths at the hands of trigger-happy men of the anti-robbery squad in 2020. Now that the police chief, Mohamed Adamu, has lifted his boots to put the unit in control. This might just be the last Nigerians we hear of SARS manning roadblocks and seizing people's phones on the streets. From Lagos, I am Collins Nosa Atohengwe for Channel Africa News. Zambia is making steady progress in combating the Africa migratory locusts to which hit three of its ten provinces. Meanwhile, there's been concern from stakeholders that if not speedily controlled, the country could have a food crisis considering that the provinces affected are part of major producers of food, our Zambia, of food. Our Zambia correspondent David, Arthur David Scopo gives us an update. In September 2020, Zambia officially confirmed that the country has an invasion of locusts in three provinces. The country gave an update that parts of southern province, western and central, have the locust swarm terrorizing both crops and affecting livestock. The Zambian government put a red alert on the situation and moved in with its partners, such as the International Red Locust Control Organization for Southern and Central Africa, and the Food and Agriculture Organization FAO to assess the situation. Government confirms that they are now on the ground dealing with the locust invasion, both in air and on land. A partner in this fight, the International Red Locust Control Organization for Central and Southern Africa, says the exercise that commenced over a week ago may take about two months to deal with considering that there are different locations affected. According to the International Red Locust Control Organization for Central and Southern Africa, scientist who is also acting as director for Zambia, Dr. Elliot Zitsanza, 
about 30,000 hectares of land could have been affected in parts of southern and western provinces. Dr. Elliot Zisanza says so far about 5,000 hectares has been surveyed and sprayed. So the, the, the surveys are going on and also the control is also going on. Since the last week, spraying has been going on and uh, a lot of progress has been made. Close to about 5,000 hectares have been sprayed now. You know, the survey, the survey is quite extensive. You know, you cover a large area and uh, in some areas you don't need to spray. In some areas you mark it for spraying. So I'll say close to about uh, 30,000 hectares will have been surveyed. And then out of that 8,000 will have been found to, to require control. Zambia is not the only country affected. But Namibia, Zimbabwe and Botswana are as well. According to the Food and Agriculture Organization, the Food and Agriculture Organization warns that about 7 million people in the four affected countries who are still recovering from the impact of the 2019 drought and grappling with the economic impacts of COVID-19 pandemic could experience further food and nutrition insecurity. And the Civil Society Organization Scaling Up Nutrition, CSO Sun, Zambia coordinator Matthews Muhuru, is concerned with food security in the whole country as he notes that the affected provinces are key to food production in the country both in livestock and crop production. Mr. Muhuru is further calling for an expedited strategy to combat this food security threat. You know, food security is a very big issue uh, in the country. If you look at southern province uh, and western province, these are, you know, the two provinces that, you know, produce most of the, of the livestock uh, when it comes to cattle, when it comes to even goats, you know, they are the two giant uh, provinces that would the rest of the country depends on. So if the locust invasion, you know, they destroy the pasture, they destroy the food that the animals are supposed to eat, then that is going to add more stresses into the livestock uh, farming. So it's a, it's a very big issue that would just make our country uh, fail to come out of this food insecurity situation. It is not yet established as to whether the other countries affected are also doing their part to contain the destructive locusts and hoppers. And the Zambian government has not been so helpful to provide information on that aspect. But Dr. Elio Sanza says it is the responsibility of the Zambian government and other governments to coordinate as those countries are not member states of the organization. Our organization is not membership, so Botswana and Namibia are not members. So what will happen is that the, the government of Zambia will work with the government of Botswana to see how they can deal with that situation in their country. Arthur Devsiskopo reporting for Channel Africa in Lusaka, Zambia. South Africa's Transport Education Training Authority is hosting its third annual Teta Women Empowerment Summit on the 21st, 23rd and 26th of this month. The 2020 installment promises to highlight disruptions and challenges in the transport sector, expose women entrepreneurs to opportunities created by these disruptions and provide relevant business advice. To tell us more about the summit, we join her on the line by Katile Ngala, Head of HR and Administration at TEDA. Khadile, thank you for joining us. Welcome to Africa Midday. Thank you for having me. Thank you for a warm welcome. It's great to have you here. Uh, talk to us about the event and, and really what it's all about. And is, is this an event only for women entrepreneurs in the, in the sector? Thank you for the opportunity. The event, um, it's about empowering women in the transport sector. Now, we know women, as opposed to other genders, they always struggle to network and to get support from all other spheres in the society. So the event historically has always been geared to promote the networking of women. And we know the upside of networking is to share opportunities and ideas in transport and in business. So this is what this is geared for, to get women together under one room, well, we'll do it virtually, but get to them under, under one room. Let them share best practice. Let them share how best others have survived um, as businesswomen and plant seeds in those that might be thinking of starting businesses. So this is what it's all about. Mm. Now, let's talk about some of the challenges that women in this sector face, Kadile, uh, some of which, of course, are going to be highlighted at the event and, and how women can overcome some of these. That's true. Any other business and any other person who's thinking of uh, putting a business together always has challenges. But we always say for women, at times it's always twofold. Now, 
access for women has always been a challenge. And now when you put that in the transport sector, it even makes it more difficult. We know historically the transport sector has always been racially biased and also gender biased. There's always a few women, and in terms of race, there's always the minority in black race. Now, what we are trying to correct here is to bring transformation, and we facilitated that through skills development. And this time for the women, we're trying to say to them, and that's what we're putting together, opportunities for them. Share opportunities, share best practice, share how others have survived this and how they have managed to ride the waves. So the conversations that will be shared there by people who've been in the business for years, there are women who've been in trucking, there are women who are in maritime, and they will be taking the stage then, sharing best practice with women who might be trying to gain access. And those women would be saying, but there's access here and here and here. And we've got support from banks, financial institutions, who will be saying, we do also have support in these areas. We also have support that will be shared by the public areas in, from transport and sector itself, the ministry, who will be sharing opportunities from the transport sector. So the takeaway here for the listeners is this event is one way you will hear about opportunities that are available in the transport sector and how you can access them. And for those women who'd like to be part of the event, Katilia, how do they do that? We have our website, where they can be able to register to come and join the event. It will be very exciting. Look, it will be for the first time that we're having it virtually. So our website, I'm going to say, give it to you, but we'll leave it, obviously, with the producer. It's www.tita.org.za. They can also get hold of us via telephone, and our number is Johannesburg 11 Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Katile, and we wish you all the best. Thank you so much. And we look forward to welcoming all the women so they can come and hear about opportunities that are available as the transport sector evolves because of COVID-19. We look forward to welcoming you. Fantastic. That was Katile Nkala, Head of HR and Administration at South Africa's Transport Education and Training Authority, TITA, bringing the time to 24 minutes after 1 o'clock. For your latest update on COVID-19, that is the novel coronavirus, I am Hilda Kekera for Channel Africa in Livingstone, Zambia. When someone coughs or sneezes, they spray small liquid droplets from their nose or mouth which may contain the virus. If you are too close, you can breathe in the droplets, including the COVID-19 virus if the person coughing has the disease. The Protection of Personal Information Act, Papaya, was signed into law recently and has left many marketers with questions around how their marketing efforts will be impacted in South Africa. A common misconception is that Papaya is a list of things marketers can no longer do. The truth is it's more about what you can do and how you can do it, managing risk and compliance. For more on this, Channel Africa's Lulu Kabu spoke to Karen Stribus, who is a marketing director at the internet marketing service company Evalytic. Yes, it's, it's really about ensuring that we have accurate data that is secure and that we have permission to communicate to our databases. There's a lot of misinformation out there that states that you have to reconsent your entire database. And marketers are freaking out. You know, we, we all think because we know that you probably only get 10% of people that could actually opt in again and that could cripple a business. But Propia doesn't say anything about reconsent in your entire database. The important thing to take into account is actually that you know where you have the database from and that you've got the proof. And that helps because then you don't need to reconsent. 
Now, the misconception or the notion that Popular is uh, a list of things that marketers can no longer do. Uh, you know, take us through that. Uh, you know, you find that uh, your phone will ring off the hook the whole day. And literally, when you answer, it's automated telemarketers. How does that work in terms of now going forward with Popia in place? So what is actually going to change is companies will need to, for example, the, the companies that sell wheat, they are now going to need to get consent to allow that specific company to contact them. So they can no longer just say, you know, you agree to receive communication from all third parties. You're going to have to get, okay, I am happy with Everlytics contacting me. So I have now given the proof, I've given, I've given consent, and I know exactly who is contacting me and why. And now what about the companies that are seemingly selling databases to marketing companies? Yes, so those are the companies that I'm referring to. When it comes to the rest of marketers, you can't you can't force someone to subscribe. If you change the way marketers behave, we're going to have to explain um, how we're collecting the information, who we're sharing it with. Uh, we're going to have to really uh, channels you communicate with them on. And, and preference centers can really help us do this as marketers. So, so we really have to give the consumer the choice. Are they okay with receiving this communication? What type of communication? What channel? And the, the companies that sell these are going to have to be very specific. So consent is about specific product services that are going to be marketed to you, specific about the channels that are going to be used, so in your example, telemarketing. And I need to have opted in. There needs to be proof that I opted in to receive these communications from this specific person. I have to have a choice. So is Popia a good thing for marketers and consumers? I believe it is. It's just important that us as marketers, we need to do our homework to put the right things into place because there are a lot of misconceptions out there. We need to understand what we can do as part of Papia and how not to kill our marketing databases. And that's why we actually partnered because we're not legal experts as Everlytic. We're a platform. We're a digital marketing platform. So we partnered with Novation Consulting because we realized that a lot of our customers are dealing with the, the same challenges. They don't necessarily understand and it's, it's a lot of legal terminology. So we partnered with Novation Consulting and we've just recently released a series of webinars as well as in the next week there'll be a guide that kind of explains it in in non-legalese terms to help help us all understand how impactful uh, Papier can be but also you know what are the things that we need to do in order not to kill our database and what's the response been like so we only recently launched it it's been this week so we've we've had a couple of people sign up to the campaign but I would urge the listeners on uh, the radio to to follow us on social media and up for the series. I think it will be quite happening. Now, Karen, very quickly, just give us your uh, social media platforms. I uh, Probably Twitter, Instagram. Just give us a detail so that uh, listeners who do want to uh, go on to your webinars are able to. Perfect. So you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Well, that report brings the time to 29 minutes after 1 o'clock. That was Karen Strabus speaking there to Luluka Boo. We're going to a break. When we come back, it will be time for our headlines. For your latest update on COVID-19, that is the novel coronavirus, I'm Hilda Kekera for Channel Africa in Livingston, Zambia. When someone coughs or sneezes, they spray small liquid droplets from their nose or mouth which may contain the virus. If you are too close, you can breathe in the droplets, including the COVID-19 virus, if the person coughing has the disease. It's time now for our news headlines with Jolani Tulo. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. 
Thank you, Zakana. Making headlines, the United Nations has warned that continued invoking of ethnic affiliations and hate speech in Guinea's election campaigns could lead to violence. Authorities in Mali have confirmed the release of a dozen political and military figures arrested during a military coup in August. And finally, a Nigerian Navy has deployed six warships and 65 gunboats in a joint multinational maritime exercise comprising 16 foreign navies from Europe, America and Africa. For Channel Africa, I'm Choloni Tulo. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. The Solidarity Fund in South Africa has approved a grant to cover some 36,000 COVID-19 tests for clinical and non-clinical healthcare workers in both the state and private sectors. This initiative is focused on the frontline workers who continue to work tirelessly in serving the nation through this pandemic. To discuss this, we join our on the line by Mohamed Bota, a project manager at the Independent Community Pharmacy Association of uh, South Africa. Good day and thank you so much for joining us here on Africa Midday. Hi, good day to you and thank you for having me and good day to all your listeners. Uh, Mr. Bote, what do you make of, of this initiative and how do you expect it to, to really mitigate the strain of, of the virus on the country's healthcare facilities? Well, firstly, the initiative is, I think is a very important one because we have to support our healthcare workers who are on the front line. And these are healthcare workers who um, they can be clinical or non-clinical healthcare workers, which means it's your nurses, your doctors, your porters, and even your admin staff. And the idea is to take the strain off the healthcare system by allowing healthcare workers to be tested outside of the system and privately and to have a quicker turnaround time. In other words, if they test today, they could have the test results by tomorrow, the day thereafter, and they can be back on that front line without having to wait five or six days for a COVID test result. Mm. And in that way, well, what have been uh, some of the, the challenges you know that that have, have faced these these healthcare workers in terms of of protection on the front lines? I mean, the challenges they have are are pandemic challenges. I mean, these these healthcare workers have no choice but to be on the front line. And they are daily in contact with people who who are suffering from from COVID, and they then have the fear that they may be COVID carriers to their communities and to people they come in contact with. But they have to be at work, and therefore, by providing a facility whereby they may test themselves regularly if necessary, gives them some sort of ease of ease of mind or peace of mind and allows them to confidently go back onto that front line, knowing that they have the support of people like ICPA, mm. and they can rely on, 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 on being tested. If the need arises, and remember, it's free. So Solidarity yeah. Fund is sponsoring this, this initiative, and healthcare workers don't necessarily have to go into their own pockets to be tested. Now, Again, uh, for those who presented, you know, with work. symptoms and need to be tested, what options do they have um, to get referred uh, for the free test? Yeah, okay. So the, the test is done via, well, not the test, but the initiation of the test is done via a mobile app. So if there's a healthcare worker out there that needs to be tested, they would access the Vula app. It's a Vula mobile app. They would then um, complete the questionnaire. We would receive that referral. ICPA would receive that referral. We would then contact the healthcare worker via SMS, provide them with a voucher number, and also the address of the, the closest testing site, and ask that they present themselves at that testing site. Thereafter, the hub, the ICPA hub, does everything. We will then arrange for the labs to collect the tests, for the testing to be done, and for the results to be delivered to them. Alternatively, they could just email ICPA, and that email address would be covid at icpa.co.za. And uh, what criteria will you use then, um, Mr. Boita, in terms of deciding which 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 um, frontline worker qualifies? Okay. So, firstly, the healthcare worker has to present with symptoms. Alternatively, if there aren't any symptoms, they at the very least must show that they've been in direct contact. With, with somebody who has tested positive for COVID. 
So we take it on very much on a good faith basis. They have to have symptoms or be or have been in direct contact with somebody who's tested positive. And then the secondary requirement is that they must not have medical aid. Alternatively, if they do have medical aid, mm. that medical aid must be exhausted as far as the COVID benefit is concerned. That's the two criteria that we have. And we'll, we'll do the necessary thereafter. Mm. And uh, where do people find out more about it? I'm sure there are some um, healthcare workers who are listening and thinking this would be a, a really viable option for them. Uh, where do they go to get more information? Again, they could simply email us at COVID mm-hmm. at um, COVID at icpa.co.za. For more information, they could just simply Google ICPA and all information about COVID will be on our website. The further alternative would simply be to speak to the, um, the head of their healthcare facility. Um, we've spoken to the national departments of health and the provincial departments of health, and they should all be aware of the ICPA program. So if they're stationed at the hospital, please um, speak to the relevant managers or, or the head of the hospital, and they'll provide them with all the information. Fantastic. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. It's uh, really um, been a pleasure chatting to you. And we hope that uh, those uh, healthcare workers uh, do indeed use that uh, facility that's available to them. Thank you for your time, Mr. Bota. Thank you for having me. Stay safe. Keep well. Well, that was uh, Mohamed Boerta there, Project Manager, the Independent Community Pharmacy Association of South Africa, was joining us on the line, bring the time almost 20 minutes before 2 o'clock. Stay with us. Hi, my name is Linda Ngomalosi, Oweswatini Tourism Authority. You are listening to Channel Africa from an African perspective. South Africa's Johannesburg Stock Exchange, the largest stock exchange on the continent, has won the Business of the Year Award at the recently virtually held 19th Annual Standard Bank Top Women Award Ceremony. These awards are known to offer inspiration, practical solution networks and support to women business leaders and entrepreneurs in Africa. The JSE remains committed to being the employer of choice in the financial services sector and has demonstrated this through the introduction of policies and initiatives which ensure that employees remain the number one priority for the business. Human Resources Director, JSE, Donald Kumalo, explains. I think for us it came in as a, as an, as a great honour as an institution uh, that's led by, you know, you know, women colleagues uh, and people that are very humble broadly, because we have the view that the things that we do are not necessarily meant for awards, but are the right things that we are doing because it, it is a correct thing to do. So it came in as a huge surprise, but at the same time, I think you just get to tell that uh, the work that we've been doing as the Johannesburg Stock Exchange in women empowerment, it's work that is recognised by our peers. Uh, as part of the Standard Bank Top Women Award. And tell us about some of uh, the initiatives that the JSE has put in place to empower women. So I, I think maybe they started multiple levels. With regards to women representation at the board level, 80% of our board members are female. Um, and then uh, at EXCO, uh, 62% of our uh, EXCO members are female. And across the business, 55% of the of the entire business, uh, it's women. So I think that for us, it's, it's a strong showing as a woman-led organization that women can lead successful businesses. And I think we've invested in, in extensively in the area of women development. Amongst that, we spend almost 60% of our budget on employee development, and that goes to female colleagues across the business. That's just big and significant for us uh, because it simply means that we continue to uh, increase our bench strength and succession of women who take over from the current women leaders in the business. Secondly, we've run initiatives such as, you know, we've put a mother's room, which is very important because we have colleagues who take time to, uh, to get blessed when they have kids and then when they come back to the office, they need a private room where they can uh, use it for a number of things such as expressing and so forth. We've built a mother's room, we believe is significant. Um, as part of the long term and creating an equal society where 
both men and women and gender is of no significance. We have launched uh, the gender neutral policy, parental leave policy, where both men and women um, will de- will get full four months you know, you know, parental leave when they uh, receive a child through birth, surrogacy, or adoptions. Those are some of the initiatives that we've been we have been running as the JSE. But over and above that, you know, during uh, you during uh, this uh, process of uh, lockdown, we've built a number of initiatives just to help colleagues across the business. And I think the biggest beneficiary from those initiatives have predominantly been our female colleagues. And would you say that as the JSE, you have uh, succeeded in meeting the uh, gender parity in terms of uh, salary equals uh, pay and also just all these things that you speak of. Would you say that you are reaching that uh, goal of making sure that uh, female employees are also recognized equally as their male counterparts? Yes, and I, and I think we've made strides in that space, especially being a female-led organization. Um, you know, we cannot have a CEO who's earning less than an exco member, as an example. And I'm just using that as a simple example. Um, similarly, at exco, we have uh, 62% female representation uh, and, and 38% male representation, and 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 the, and the the biggest, the highest earners, and, and I think I can say this very publicly because it's public information, because all exco members are prescribed officers, so their salaries get published. You can go to our to our website today, look at our website, you'll see our female colleagues are the highest earners um, at the JSCA, and we, we're comfortable with that. We believe that it's parity, we pay for vain, like we've seen most places where people occupying strategic position, delivering high-level revenue, they get they get paid and rewarded accordingly and so forth. And I think at the JS we've done it's exactly that. We have we included in the pro- this process of gender pay parity with the board in 2018, and we've agreed to run this process every every two years. And having reviewed that entire process, we're comfortable that our pay structure at the JSC does not discriminate against against women uh, at all. And in fact, we you know what we're saying. You know, we've seen the majority of women. Who are in the majority in any event by 55% and 62% and so forth, and you know, you know, slightly higher than the average, you know, you know uh, male colleague at the JSE. And again, it's because they occupy strategic roles, they drive revenue, they deliver 90% of the revenue, and they must be rewarded accordingly and so forth. Mm-hmm. So we're very comfortable as the JSE. Our books are clean. We can we have shown that to the board, uh, <clears throat> the prescribed officers, which are exco members and the CEO. The salary is public. It's on the website. You can go in, look at our annual results, look at our REM report. As you can see for yourself, it talks to an institution that is fully empowered women, and and, and it's not a question of um, uh, and what's I'm looking for the term now. It's not a question of uh, what, what showcasing you know, incorrect information. This is information that is public, so we're comfortable with that as well. More important for us is not about awards. But it's about doing the right thing, and we take that to corporate South Africa recognize the, the value and the work that we're doing in the space of women empowerment, and we'll continue to do so, and we'll share notes with others who are keen on understanding what we're doing, uh, so that we can see more corporates and more companies uh, being women-led at the board, exco, majority female, uh, included as well in across the businesses, and that's what we want to see: is full empowerment, is equal opportunities, and our female colleagues must take the rightful place uh, in corporate South Africa. That was Donald Kumalo, the Human Resources Director at the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, speaking to Tuto Ngobeni. Gardeners in South Africa will come together on Sunday to reap the rewards of their hard work and to relish in the beauty of their gardens. This year, Garden Day is especially relevant as over the past few months, South Africans have turned to their green spaces to find solace and balance. There have also been stories from around the world and on how gardening took off and supported people during lockdown. General Butada spoke to some gardeners in the country and felt this report. According to a recent survey by gardening app Candid, 96% of people say they feel happier when they spend time in their gardens. However, for some, gardening is also about helping communities, especially in times of dire need. When COVID-19 hit South Africa, prompting a national hardcore lockdown, many people could not fend for themselves. In those tough times, one gardener, Rifilwe Mulefe, from the inner city community of Bertrams in Johannesburg, could not sell produce or the vegetable juices that she makes on the markets and to restaurants because they were closed. 
but instead she ran a soup kitchen delivering food parcels for underprivileged people in the area. Mama Rifilwe, as she is passionately known, explains. It was very much challenging because when the authorities from City of Jobe came to the farm to say, Mama refused, what are you going to do? Because everyone must be quarantined because this sickness is spreading all over. I told them that, yes, I can see the sickness in our country, but people will die of hunger more than of sickness. People won't have anything to eat. They are not working. They are at home, but they have to eat. I said I will stay at the farm and look after my plants and plants other than going to stay at home and find my plants dead. And I had started the soup kitchen to feed my community. It was challenging, but with the food, you know, when you plant, you always have food. You may not have money, but you have food all the time. I started a soup kitchen, which was feeding a lot of people. And even now, I feed a lot of people. Mama Rifilwe developed her food garden in 2007. I started this garden when I realized there was a need in my community. There were children who could not go to creches because their parents could not afford orphans running around. I realized they would be bumped by cars. So I said, let me do something for these children. I asked my daughter to give me her garage so that I can keep them in one place. After that, there was no food. I started thinking to say, how am I going to feed these children? But then I was fortunate enough because I went to Blurbon Southgate, who gave me a lot of fresh bread. After some time, bread alone was not food to me. It was not good food then. I went to the social development at the skill center where I am, where the family is, and asked them if I can get something which will help me feed the children, but I did not get anything. I found there was a space which was used as a bowling green. Then I said, can I make a garden here so that I can get, have good food for the children? From Orlando West in Soweto, south of Johannesburg, Ntlantlamakwe has set out to inspire young people to lead the way in encouraging residents of the area to become more self-sufficient by growing their own food with the most limited resources. I took that initiative to teach, you know, and actually not teach only but to learn because in this journey uh, I'm learning because I didn't go to school to study agriculture. This is a God-given talent, and I'm giving much time into it. So people come to my space. I tell them about the fun and most important elements of owning a food garden at home, and that is to sustain your family, even sustain yourself. Josephine Katumba is a 24-year-old urban gardening advocate, also from Johannesburg. I think I'm, I'm one in a few young people that actually enjoy gardening and my passion for gardening has actually been inspired by my mother so going back to my childhood my mom always had something a vegetable garden in our backyard and it was something that she enjoyed doing she loved doing and I remember as a kid sometimes helping her out in her vegetable garden and I guess somehow that passion was transferred to me which, which is something I never would have imagined. But yeah, here we are now. 25-year-old Magwe also admits that it is not common for young people to be passionate about gardening. Yes, uh, I'm aware of that uh, young people, especially people uh, below my age, don't really give much into gardening. But the reason why I'm doing this is to encourage young people like myself, you know, that they should own their own gardens because the only thing now is for people to rely on the soil. And that in this generation that we are living in, we are ignorant as a youth. You know, we don't know much about the soil and so much abundance we can get from the soil. Katumba shares some advice for those who think gardening is too much work. So one thing that we must remember with gardening is that you're working with nature. So you're working with the elements. And that's something that we don't have control over. You know, and especially if you want to work, if you want your garden to be kind of a biodiversity, so you want kind of all types of insects and plants to work kind of in together in your garden. You just remember that you're working with nature. All that uh, report bring the time to 10 minutes before two o'clock. It's time now for our
Economic Update with Nosile Zuma. Thank you, Zikana. Good afternoon. Leading global business and labor groups say a group of 20 nations, which is G20, must offer poorer countries a longer freeze in debt payments and help protect the global economy from long-term scarring inflicted by COVID-19 pandemic. The International Chamber of Commerce, the International Trade Union Confederation and Global Citizens warn of job losses, increasing poverty, rising child mortality and high business failure rates in poorer countries to make Make immediate action. The group pushing to end extreme poverty by 2030 says the required contribution from the world's leading economies is minute compared to the social and economic cost of inaction. G20 finance ministers will meet by teleconference next week. The World Bank says the coronavirus crisis is expected to drive a 3.3% contraction in sub-Saharan African economies. The bank says this could push 40 million Africans into extreme poverty. The Washington-based lender says growth in the region would rebound in 2021. Former South Africa's power utility board member Vernet Klein says she recalls seeing former board chairperson Ben Ngobane appearing relentless on the phone with former public enterprise minister Lynn Brown before a major decision was made. She has told the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture in Johannesburg that the decision related to the inclusion of ESCOM's former finance director on the list of executives who were to be suspended was made in 2015. Other witnesses, including former ESCOM chairperson Zola Zozi have testified in the past that the instruction to suspend the four executives at the time came from President Jacob Zuma. Klein says former chief executive Tidi Somadona was one of the four suspended. I found it strange that Dr. Ben was running in and out and coming back and forth. And I think what Dr. Ben said was that he was on the phone with the minister. That happened in that PNG meeting. Yes. And I think it's at that point yes. when that name went back on. Yes. Where, what exactly the minister said to him or did not say, I cannot account for, you'll have to ask Dr. Ben. Yes. But it was at that stage. Yes. Remember the minister in the earlier meeting said yes. to the people who's responsible for. Yes. So what exactly was said between Dr. Ben and the minister, I don't know. Nigeria has approved a 3.2 billion US dollars from the reconstruction of Port Harcourt to Maiduguri rail line. Minister of Transport Rodimi Amaechi briefed the media after Wednesday's council meeting. Amaechi says the council also approved contracts for the construction of a deep sea port in Boni as well as a railway industrial park in Port Harcourt. And the World Trade Organization is expected to announce the final two candidates from a short list of five to lead the agency. Reports suggest they are both women, Ngozi Ogoncholwela of Nigeria and Yu Mung-hee of South Korea. The BBC's Andrew Walker reports. The WTO is an organization currently under severe strain. One of its biggest member countries, the United States, has major concerns, some of which are reflected in a block on new appointments to the body which hears appeals in trade disputes between member countries. That has left one of the WTO's main functions, settling these commercial conflicts, seriously impaired. Dealing with the US could be a major challenge for the next Director General, certainly if President Trump is re-elected. For your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 384.84 Nigerian Nara, 11.35 Botswana Bula, 107.57 Kenyan Shilling and 20.07 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar is trading at 5.59 Brazilian Rule, 78.19 Russian Ruble, 73.27 Indian Rupee, 6.78 Chinese Yuan and at 16.63 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British Pound and 85 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,883 and platinum at $855 per ounce. And the price of brand crude oil is at $41.63 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Nusi Zuma.
You're listening to Africa Weekday. That's how we wrap things up for Africa midday for today. From myself, Zakona Miso, my producer, Antlanta Matlangu, and my technical producer, Adrian Kenny. It's cheers for today. We'll leave you with the sounds of Malay. This one is titled Chimsoro. <laughs>